Before we get started, I'm excited to announce that I was featured in Find That Pod, number 63, and you can find them at findthatpod.com. It's a neat little newsletter where they recommend podcasts every week. I also want to announce that my next live stream will be this coming Thursday, that is June 18th, 2020. In case you're listening in the future, you can always go back and listen to it. It is with Jim Fitzgerald, who was an FBI profiler and was instrumental in catching the Unabomber. Remember to check out the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Eric Hunley, where I have other live streams and interviews with some amazing folks like Jim. Now, today's episode is with Danielle Trussoni. Danielle is a New York Times, USA Today, and Sunday Times top 10 bestselling novelist. Her novels have been translated into 33 languages, and she also writes the Dark Matters column for the New York Times Book Review. Danielle is an expert on horror and writing and a great resource. I think you'll enjoy it. So I present to you Danielle Trissoni. Today we're joined by Danielle Trissoni, and she has a brand new book out called The Ancestor, but we're going to dig a little bit into writing fiction and horror Danielle, how are you doing today? I'm great, Eric. How are you? I'm doing great. And I want to start this interview off oddly, but let's talk about Grassnost. What do you mean by Grassnost? Well, you actually appeared in the video version of one of the most popular podcasts in America, This American Life. Oh, yeah. Th that's something that I, is like from a different world. I didn't even know that that was the title. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what happened with it? Because it, it is a fascinating thing. It was like um, a piece about a lawn. Well, I mean, that's the that's the whole thing about this American life, right? They take something that's seemingly totally banal and perhaps not interesting to anyone and turn it into a major drama. And, um, you know, I think that that's also David Sedaris's um, secret for being who he is, right, is taking the mundane and making it hilarious. So, yeah. Oh, my God. I haven't thought about that for 10 years, more than 10 years. <laughs> well, I think it's really kind of funny because you went from quibbling about lawns to a fortress in France. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, as one does, right? Uh, yeah. I'd say you have range. How, how did that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so my range as a storyteller, actually, um, you know, that that like going from This American Life to A Fortress in France, like that isn't even the beginning. I started my career by, um, you know, sending in the first, I think, 15 or 20 pages I had ever written seriously to the Iowa Writers Workshop and getting accepted. And, and that was my beginning of a, a career in writing in the sort of literary world. Um, and from there, I went to all sorts of different places. Now I'm, you know, I have a book that just came out called The Ancestor that's considered horror, which is not anywhere in, in terms of range, if that's what you're, if what we're talking about here, like what I started off doing. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I'm interested in is moving um, into sort of uncharted territory for me as a storyteller and pushing myself into new places. Well, I think um, many would consider Mary Shelley to be quite literary. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, the found, basically the foundational, as they call them, foundational writers of horror, like the, the, the novels that define what horror was originally, like Dracula or, you know, Frankenstein or um, 
I don't know, you know, you can go, there's a ton of them in the 19th century, the Brontes, for example. All of those books are highly literary and we're always considered highly literary. I think our genre distinctions, if we're going to get into that right now, are, are, are very artificial and have been thrown up in the late 20th century to today to define marketing venues and shelves on bookstores and shelves in libraries. Um, I really think they have very little value other than marketing. Well, that's interesting because, well, my wife happens to be a library director. Mm. So we've gone down this um, rabbit hole a little bit. And from what I understand, horror, I kind of thought of it as a subgenre of fantasy. And my wife threw out speculative fiction. And yeah, kind speculative of fiction. Umbrella <laughs> yeah. over all of that. I think that that is the umbrella, you know, if we're talking about categories, I think, I think you're right. But, um, you know, if you start getting into the archaeology of these, of these genres, you know, um, horror really does go back to the 1800s, um, Frankenstein, you know, the books we talked about before, mm -hmm. whereas fantasy has more of an origin in like Tolkien and William Morris. And, you know, there's a whole different genealogy. Um, but I think now, you know, if you go to Wikipedia, for example, and look up all of these different genres, your wife is right. Speculative fiction is sort of the umbrella under which they're all sheltered. Um, but for the writer, you know, those listening who write and who love writing and reading and telling stories, I think that all of it mixed together makes the best kind of storytelling, you know, going across genres, taking what you need, you know, from, exa for example, from a crime genre and then the fantasy genre and then literary fiction, which is a genre, right? Literary writing is also a kind of genre, um, you know, taking all of those things and mixing them up and making something utterly new and special is uh, where the magic happens. I, I'd agree. And I think that Really, they've been mixing it up for a while. Wouldn't you agree that Edgar Allan Poe, he not only wrote what would be considered suspense or horror, but he also created the modern detective novel? Oh, for sure. I mean, he was – but I th I would even argue that back then there weren't those – you know, people weren't limited. Like, they, I don't think he would publish a story and people would immediately categorize him in a genre and say, you can't step out of it. <laughs> <laughs> like he, it was much more fluid and, and, and people were inventing things at the same time. There wasn't the kind of industrialization or marketplace for storytelling that there is now. So things have really um, changed since his time. Well, I like, I like playing with this too, because we're talking about genres within one category, but then we can start jumping out of that and start looking at media types because that becomes a factor too, whether it be a podcast or an audio book or a video. Exactly. Well, I'm I'm very much in the school of thought that those media types and those boundaries within media are going to be breaking down even more than they already have. Um, I, you know, the novel that I have coming out that came out today um, is called The Ancestor, um, but I. While I was writing it, um, I conceived of an audio drama podcast from elements of that book. And, you know, so I went away with the sort of like little piece of the ancestor, uh, the novel, and wrote 10, 25 minute episodes for audio drama, which I'm so excited about as a form. 
right? Like the idea that you can script an audio play in essence. And then, you know, we have 15 actors, a sound designer, um, a composer, a director, and put all of these things together and people can just, you know, go on Apple podcasts and subscribe. And you have this amazing form of storytelling in your head, right? It's with you. And it's, it's totally incredible to me. But what's awesome and amazing for me is that now at this point in history, storytellers have the freedom to make those choices and, and, and create those kinds of stories. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. And I'm a bit older than you are, but I'm a child of the 70s, 80s. And even then, I would go to the library and I would check out old radio dramas and audio dramas from the you know, 20s, 30s, and 40s. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, those are were the best, right? I mean, and, and one, one thing that I love about them and, and what I think is so magical and why I, I decided to experiment with this form um, is that it gives you, obviously, sound and character, but it doesn't give you visual. So you can imagine those. And sometimes I find that the worlds I'm imagining are so much more rich than anything I could see on a television screen or in a movie theater. I wanted to ask you about that. And I'm going to take this a odd direction for you. But you, as a writer, are very focused on the visual, describing a scene in intimate detail. However, there are I study a lot of people who do influence and persuasion, even hypnosis. And there's a certain power, especially when you're in audio, of instead of my saying you're on a cold beach with the windswept trees, if I say you're walking on the beach and feel the sand, now you're going to start painting your own beach versus right. the beach that I tell you. How does that reflect in your writing? Or have you ever considered that? Well, of course, I think really great writing is sensual writing. It's about the senses and accessing a kind of reality of the mind through sight, sound, audio, touch, all of that smell, and bringing those sensations into a story in whatever way you can engages a reader in the world that you're trying to create and present. So yeah, I think, I think that's a huge part of the way that I like to tell stories. And it's also um, why I think that something like an audio drama is really exciting because you can do all of that, right? There's, there's the visual element is missing. So you have to fill in a lot. Um, which is very, you know, tactile and, and exciting and, and dramatic for me. Well, excellent. And what do you have to change from your current style of writing? Do you, is, is there anything you're doing slightly differently? Like it would it be a dialogue consideration or are you having to read aloud everything that you're doing versus when you're writing? Or do you do that when you write novels? Oh, so you mean between writing a novel and versus writing an audio drama? Yeah, or for that matter, screenplays. So let's look at all three. Yeah. So with novels, like for example, The Ancestor, you know, I don't read it out loud. I, I write it all the way through. And and um then, you know, maybe sometimes in the editing process I, I will start to do that. Um, and with audio drama, obviously, the, the biggest difference is that I am, um, you have to convey everything through sound, right? Mm -hmm. So 
a character if a, if a character isn't somehow painting the picture through words through dialogue then the sounds in the background have to do it for you and in writing a script like that i have to take that into consideration what exactly is this scene going to feel like or sound like to someone who has no idea visually where they're at. So you add wind or you add rain or you add, you know, if we go back to the walking on the beach, you add the sound of, of pebbles and sand under somebody's boot. And, you know, those sorts of cues um, you don't have to worry about in writing fiction. You can just say, it, you know, exactly, you know, you can just describe it. So it's another world. And, you know, the same thing with writing scripts for, for television or, or film, you know, you just, it's all about painting the picture without saying it directly. Yeah. There's an old rule. I think it applies to all the genres. Don't tell show. Um, right. Exactly. And, you know, the, the thing is though, the problem with that is if you wrote a, an entire novel, just showing and not telling, you would have like <laughs> a thousand page novel that you didn't know what was going on. So there has to be a nice balance. Um, and I like to, you know, move between what we call exposition or like setting things up and some sort of direct storytelling too. like what I also call giving it air, like letting people, letting the characters speak and letting things unfold. So yeah, there has to be a good balance. You don't want to take anything too literally that they tell you in MFA classes. That's fair. And I hate to beat her up, but there's been a couple Anne Rice books where six pages describing a room's a little much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, right. Well, she does, you know, she is a very sensual writer, right? She's doing all, all that stuff with the senses. Which sometimes is great. Sometimes it's infuriating. Depending. Yeah. And it's interesting. I caught in one interview that you were a huge VC Andrews fan. Well, so that interview would say that when I was like a kid. <laughs> well, hold yeah. on, no. Let's let's be fair though. She was impactful to you. Well, you could say right. now I wrote, you're more right. talented, et cetera. But the truth is that she was impactful. So that's But that's so was, for example, Little House on the Prairie, right? Like I read um everything when I was that age. And, right. you know, yes, I love I did love VC Andrews partially because it was so taboo and so outside yeah. of the realm of my 12-year-old or 13-year-old um, imagination. But everything um, that I was going to the library and coming home with huge bags of books, and I just took everything. So I read a lot of Stephen King. I read a lot of – I did read Anne Rice when I was a kid. I read V.C. Andrews. I loved horror, um, and I loved I loved basically storytelling that made me feel something, right? Mm -hmm. So scary or emotional or very dramatic. Um, it kind of didn't matter to me as long as it, it put me in a different world and, and I was able to have an emotional connection to the characters. So, um, yeah, so you're right. It, she, those books were impactful. Even if they just gave me an outsized sense of um, like drama, right? A mm -hmm. need for something dramatic to happen in a story. I really hate stories where nothing happens. <laughs> That's kind of infuriating. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're probably far more patient than I am because you read a lot more, but. Well, the thing is, is at this point in my life, I've, I've stopped reading after, you know, so many pages if the no nothing's happening. I have less patience. Well, and that's good. I kind of am that way too. And my issue is I, I almost exclusively listen. Oh, so audiobooks or? Almost completely, yes. I love audiobooks. 
Yes, that's, um, I got hooked into it, and now that's really all I can find time to do. Yeah, they're great. So they can um, they can they can be tough to. It, it depends on what it is. What what I found with audiobooks, and I'd be curious to see what you think. I realized that I was a fast reader, about 100 pages an hour. I don't know if that's fast or not, but it's that's it's pretty fast, yeah. But I realized when listening to audiobooks that hmm, I wasn't getting every word. I think I was mm. part skimming, part reading. Yep. And with the audiobooks, I was actually forced to ingest every word, and my comprehension level went through the roof. Yeah. Yeah. No, I th- I think that that's true. Also, it, it does slow you down. If you're a fast reader, you have you know you slow down and and you listen and you enjoy it. Right. I'm not one who can do a, the 1.5 or 2x. <laughs> yeah. No. Me neither. Um, also, I think if you're on a computer a lot, um, audio really saves your eyes. Like, you know, for me, I just don't want you know after I've been writing all day, I, I would rather close my eyes and listen to something. Yeah. And does that are you a major reader as a writer or not? Or you see, I'm I'm curious about it because like I've had Brian Freeman on. I'm not sure if you've heard of him, but he's a New York Times bestseller. But he doesn't really read in his genre. Um, what do, what genre is he? I don't know his work. Um, Jonathan Stride, I'm a mystery thriller. Oh, okay. Suspense, yeah. Yeah. So I can see that. I mean, I read very widely. Um, but you know. And I read a lot of um, gothic and horror and sort of dark historical um, novels because of my job reviewing books at the New York Times. Um, But before that, it's true. I would I, you know, love 19th century literature, for example. One of my favorite writers is um, a writer named Wilkie Collins. And, you know, I love reading, of course, Edgar Allan Poe and that sort of thing. But I wasn't reading contemporary um, writers as much. So I understand that. I'm always reading something though. Okay. What well, what were some of your influences? Looking back, um, you know, the, the kinds of things that I write, um, are, I, I would say, you know, a lot of the, the novels I referenced earlier, like 19th century Gothic novels, you know, like the Brontes and that sort of thing. But also I love very smart, science fiction too like hmm. in the kind of michael crichton way you know like um meaning, thrillers almost yeah or like basically a, a kind of wound up premise that unwinds over the course of the book a, a sort of high concept um storytelling style and i've always loved that angelology is very much that way um that was my first novel and it was basically asking the question what if the Nephilim, which is this group of angels that's mentioned briefly in the Bible that were human hybrids with angels, what if those creatures always existed as the Bible said they had in this little passage and they're still on earth with us, right? And what if they're responsible for all of the crimes in humanity? It's not humanity that's doing these sort of awful things like world what happened in world war ii and various other atrocities it's actually this group of creatures right and so then i made the sort of historical schema but it's set in the present so it just mix it up mixes it all up um it's really you know there's a lot of layers of history and storytelling and mythology and science in in that book and i see that you know my influences are very varied um i went to catholic school as a kid 
mm-hmm. and um, spent a lot of time sitting in church, bored out of my mind, listening to uh, readings from the Bible and looking around at the paintings. <laughs> and, you know, clearly that had an effect on me, too. So it's all mixed up in there. I, w- I wouldn't say there's one thing. Well, it's interesting, too. I mean, does the Catholic background attract you to, like, ritual? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I, that's, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yes, definitely. Um, I'm very ritualistic in, in my writing. I write every day at the same time. Um, I'm pretty careful about writing almost every day. Um, I like the, I like, you know, yeah, I like the idea of ritual and, and work and um, how that plays out in a career. Okay, I want to change gears a little bit. You're also a voting member of the Horror Writers Association, or were you? Um, yes, I am. Okay, I'm curious, and you'll probably hate this part, but what is going on with the awards? There are so many controversies. You had the Hugo Awards with the Sad Puppies, and what, Rabbit Puppies, and Madness. Romance Writers of America canceling the 2020 awards. I think there was something that went on with um, the Horror Writers of Association with uh, somebody they brought on. Oh, I don't know about that. They don't tell me. <laughs> oh. So yeah, I have no idea. I'm I'm really just as a member, a paying member of the Horror Writers Association, I can vote. I really have no I'm not part of the hierarchy. I'm not part of the organization. I just, you know, because I'm I'm writing the horror column for the New York Times, I have joined the Horror Writers <laughs> Association. Okay. Um, it, that's all there is to that. I don't know that there's anything going on with them. Hmm, I'll have to check it out. Well, is it like three years ago, somebody they brought on to do judging, I believe was a member of a group that some called neo-Nazi. I don't know. I uh, The National Front out of England, I think it was. But I don't know. It's one of those that I hate to go and agree with labels because everybody likes to label things that they don't mm-hmm. like. Uh, David A. Riley, sorry. And he had ties to the National Front. Oh, okay. I I didn't know about that. But, you know, it's not surprising that someone who writes horror novels might have some sort of controversial (laughs) views, (laughs) you know, like people who go to dark places might actually um, want to go to those places in reality, if you know what I mean. Um, so I could see that. And yeah, it's not that surprising. That's a kind of a weird path I wanted to go down. I just, I'm just curious about, but, um, you're into podcasts and listening to them. True crime is one of the hottest things out there. And it is a very, very popular with women, especially. Uh, yeah. Any speculation yeah. <laughs> as to why? Mm, I don't know. Maybe women are secretly homicidal. maybe we want to kill a bunch of people i don't know no i have no idea i i'm personally not interested in true crime i don't know why um but uh yeah i know it's very popular and and a lot of people are listening to true crime podcasts but they're also watching you know that's what's popular excuse me that's what's popular on television and and you know as well and and there are many films based on true sure Lifetime events. So yeah, people love that (laughs) in general. I think people love that in general. For some reason, it's never really caught um, my imagination. Well, I'm guessing and maybe I'm wrong. I feel like you might be living in the past a little bit. Um, The gothic and I don't know. Well, my novel, the novel that I just wrote, The Ancestor is set now. Um, And Angelology is also set now. Um, so I think that I'm pretty much here now. And, you know, the thing about the ancestor 
is that the whole premise is that um, a woman takes a, a, a like just a sort of box genetics test, a kind of DNA test, and that right. turns her whole life upside down. So, you know, again, I'm fascinated with technology and um, science, but like very cutting edge science, and you know, what defines us genetically as being part of one group or another. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm very appreciative of, of the past and history, of course. And I see that as definitely something that I'm drawing on in my writing, but I wouldn't say that I'm living in the past. Sometimes I, you know, sometimes it's nice to escape, you know, the present world, especially now, um, and, you know, go someplace else mentally, but yeah, no, I'm very much here. Okay, I would guess I was being influenced by, um, you know, a fortress in France and things like that, which most yeah. people would say is, eh, yeah, maybe, maybe going back a little bit. Well, it's very much that fortress is very much um, part of a 21st century village now, right? It's and people live there, and I lived there, and the village was occurring. You know, I find it picturesque, but the thing that's interesting to me about um, European civilization. Um, my husband is French. Um, and, and, uh, what's interesting to me about going to France is just how people live with the past in the present. Right. Um, and you know, here in the States, it's a little bit different because we don't have much that's, you know, more than a couple of hundred years old. Yeah. I can totally relate to that because if you go like to the French quarter in new Orleans and certain areas where actually is a few hundred years old you feel it yeah and it's great right to have that ability to and it's not like you know their mardi gras celebrations are trying to recreate the past no it's like the present and people alive but in this environment that's um you know more uh historical yeah no that, that makes sense and there's their whole style of design is an eclectic mix of everything yeah and i love it i love that Okay. Now, on that note, you have a podcast, and I hope I don't mutilate his name, but it's with Ponio Giannopoulos. So the podcast is called Writerly, and there are lots of episodes up, but um, we've stopped doing new episodes now for the past few months. Um, and it is with Ponio Giannopoulos, who is also a writer. Um, so, you know, if there's anyone out there who's interested in it's a, you know, it's a podcast about the art and business of writing. So oh. there's a lot of information about, you know, what we do as writers and our careers as writers and that sort of thing. And I think that's been really helpful for, for beginning writers. And so that's there free for people who want a resource. Um, but it's not going forward at the moment, Oh, unfortunately. What? I, I wanted to discuss a little because I, I feel like I used to teach at the U of A Extended U, and I found that when I was scrambling to come up with subjects the next day or having to deal with students, I wound up learning the topic so much better than I thought I knew because I had to actually describe it or come up with a way to explain Right, something. yeah. Did the show do that for you at all? Um, For sure. It actually helped crystallize, I think, the ideas that I had um, about what it meant to be a writer and about my path. Um, it made me think more clearly about what I wanted as a writer too. You know, when you're talking about things like, um, what a career means as a writer and what a genre is, you know, we've already discussed this, but that's something that comes up a lot. And what do you want in your agent and what do you want with the ideal editor? All of those things, um, 
you know, become much more clear when you're talking about them and it's being recorded and then people, you know, write to you and have questions. So, yeah, I think so. I think it was really good for me. You know, it's, it was me giving information um, to people who wanted to listen, but also it was very good for me. Well, and I feel like things have changed a great deal. And I think you've talked about it in, in different interviews as well. I remember a time where quote self-publishing was embarrassing as a vanity publishing type of deal. And if you self-publish a book, you were a hack and you paid for it and you're trying to push it out of your trunk. Now it seems like the tide has turned and a lot of people are self-publishing that would surprise you. Yeah, I have not self-published yet, but I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing at all. Um, you know, on one of the great misfortunes um, of this pandemic is that so many bookstores and outlets for books, including libraries, have been closed. And what is surviving and what's um, sort of, you know, keeping people in books and, you know, well supplied with books is electronic media. So um, I don't know. I think people who are self-publishing right now, their books are still going out and being being bought. So, and I think that that's good for them. I don't know, gen generally speaking, how the literary world will receive um, writers, you know, who are self-publishing. I don't know if they get well-reviewed or I really don't know that much of, about the technicality of it. But I, in you know, in theory, I think it's great. It's it's kind of weird, though, too. I mean, I feel like maybe a lot of things are changing. It's not that dissimilar to the music world. But there was a time when, you know, you got became a published writer with an agent you got with a big publisher and they would push you out. They would promote you from what I've seen. Now the author's job is to get a platform. Yeah. They don't promote you anymore. So it's starting to lose some of the value. Yeah. It's starting to lose some of the value. One thing that they can still do is um, if, for example, your book takes off, they can print and distribute very easily and quickly. Mm -hmm. um, they also do provide publicity uh, in some, you know, marketing and publicity to some degree. So that means that they send out books to all the libraries and they send advanced copies, send right. out advanced copies to um, the independent booksellers. And they, they do have, you know, newsletters and mail outs and all of that stuff. So there is value. And also having a great editor is, sure. you know, that's amazing. Um, that can improve your book, um, by many fold. So I'm not, I, I wouldn't say that there's no value at all in having a traditionally published book now on the contrary, I think that it is valuable, but, um, I think that, you know, they're not going to hold your hand and build a platform for you. They're going to, they'll, they'll ask you to do it. Okay. And I wasn't trying to denigrate any value per se. I actually think of it as, um, contrasts. For yes. example, you mentioned editing and technically you can hire an editor. Yes, you can. Um, and there are very good independent editors out there. And it's kind of, and, and the reason why I brought music world is sort of that way too. Now where it used to be a time an A&R rep would go see a band in a club and say, Oh my God, you're amazing kid. Come on in. We got to talk. And now it's kind of like, huh, what kind of audience do you have? Oh, are you filling the clubs? Come yeah. see us. Yeah. And I find that interesting. And I would argue you actually have stepped into self-publishing a little bit. I have? Oh, cool. Well, think about <laughs> it. Um, Riderly Podcast was self-published. You have a new podcast coming off of your own material, which you own. 
It may not be book, but it's self-publishing. Right. Or producing. I, you know, I, I would almost say that it's closer almost to broadcasting, almost like, um, I, I see it someplace in between publishing the way that, you know, a book or an audiobook is published and, um, like what Netflix does, right. With serializing content. So it's someplace in between there, <laughs> but yeah, I know. And, and what happens when you do that is you take the risk and you invest the money and time. And if it works, it works great. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And you're a hundred percent responsible. That's true. And it's funny that you brought up audiobooks because I think that's a, a great place that sort of covers the gamut of you have everything from you have a publisher, the publisher hires somebody to read or whatever. I don't know what approvals you have, but they are handling it. They pay for the studio and all the time and yep. you get royalties out of it, correct? Yeah. Yes. Other scenarios like self-publishing or it, or it could be a hybrid because there are some people who get published by a traditional publisher, but they retain the audio rights and they sell the audio rights to say recorded books. Right. Or another. And that's kind of a hybrid because it's, it's professional, um, book publisher and a professional audiobook publisher. Then you have, uh, self publishing where you can literally go with ACX or the like where the narrator can be hired by the author and they either split the royalties down the middle or pay a flat fee. Right. Have you looked into all these or? I haven't. I haven't looked into any of those. Oh, okay. Well, I was thinking that your podcast is kind of similar to, shall we say, the ACX model, where I'm guessing you retained your rights, but then you hired the actors to play the roles and the producer to produce the right. audio. Yeah, right. It, it, we, it, we um, I have a partner in it, and, and together we essentially produced it as if it were, um, you know, a film, a short film or, uh, you know, something along those lines where we own what it's called intellectual property. We retain, retain the rights to all of that. And then, um, we found actors and we found, I, I did the writing and then my partner directed and produced and found the actors and, and it all went really well. I think, you know, if you want to hear it, um, anyone who's listening, it's uh, called crypto Z and it's on Apple podcasts and you can subscribe. It's free and it's should be, you know, by the time this airs, there should be at least one episode up there. If not, you can go on YouTube and find the trailer. Definitely. And, and by the way, it is probably if you listed it correctly, also on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other locations as well. Yeah, it should be everywhere. So the Apple Podcast is starting to lose the domination a little bit. Ah, cool. So definitely, gotta look out for the um, 80% who have Android. I'm on Apple myself, but I try to be focused <laughs> on the majority of the world uses Android. Interesting. What are your plans going forward? I think you're working on a another book, like a third book of the angelology series. So that, you know, I, I am, um, that one, if, if I ever self-published, that will be the one I self-publish. Um, and, uh, I am working on that. I haven't, you know, I have that all figured out. Um, I just have to write it. Um, and then I'm working on something else that I started playing with, but I'm not really ready to talk about it because it's not for sure yet. So I'm kind of, you know, I just had this book published today, which is very exciting. Um, and 
um, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to clear my calendar so I can go away and write, which oh, is nice. my favorite thing to do. Okay. And I'm curious because you're now starting to toy with the different, you know, genres and things. Are you writing with the other outputs in mind as you create? Um, let me see. Actually, um, not specifically. No. Um, although I think that that would be a smart way to do it, right? To think about how, where it would be placed alternately, you know, a book and then some someplace else. But really for me, the most important thing is falling in love with a character and a kind of complicated premise. Um, and sort of seeing how I can make that unfold dramatically. Um, so I just, you know, I found a story that I fell in love with and characters that I'm really in love with. And that's what I'm working on. You know, that's what I've been playing with. Okay. So does it ultimately all go to story for you? For sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's the only, you know, the one thing that's in, that I haven't, um, that's, you know, the common thread between everything I do is storytelling and not just any kind of storytelling, but like dramatic, suspenseful, um, storytelling that reveals something surprising, um, so, yeah, storytelling is definitely the common thread. Okay. Now, to wrap things up, what would you recommend for someone who wants to be a storyteller or author now versus maybe in the past? So, it's really a different world than it was in the past, but one thing is is the same. And, you know, that's good writing, good storytelling, um, a, a good grip on character and, and drama, all of that. So, and the only way you can really figure that out is to just write. Um, the problem that people have is, you know, they're like, oh, I write and then where does it go? But there's all sorts of outlets now, you know, there's, there's things like Wattpad, you know, I haven't published on Wattpad, but people have, um, and it's a sort of open source place where you can, um, publish your work and get feedback and, and sort of build a community of people who like what you're doing. Um, start, just start somewhere, right. And keep writing. The other thing I would say is to develop a routine that's meaningful to you. Um, I write every day, you know, I know that a lot of people write around their day jobs or, you know, the other jobs they have. Well, find a half an hour or even, a, you know, an hour if you can every day to just sit down and do that. It's um, going to cumulatively bring the level of your writing and storytelling up. And that's what you need to to find the people in the world that you need to make your stories um, viable, you know, whether that's an agent or whether that's an editor at a literary magazine or whether that's a teacher at an MFA program, you know, those people will recognize you when they see that you're serious about what you do, that you consider it an art, um, and that you're dedicated. Well, cool. And maybe I'm wrong, but is one of those two not to be afraid to suck for a while? Well, yeah. I mean, perfectionism <laughs> is really definitely, you know, the enemy of, of becoming anything, right? Mm. Like, I don't think anyone would become good at what they do if they were worried about being perfect from the beginning. <laughs> Um, so yeah, definitely you're, you know, everyone, everyone writes a bad book, everyone writes bad stories and then they pick themselves up and they go on, um, or they're stubborn and they keep rewriting it until they, they love it. Um, so yeah, All right, perfect. let go, <laughs> let go and, and don't be afraid to suck for a while. Well, and I can say that from podcasting. It, I mean, it, it's like, you can't, well, you can't ride a bike without falling down a few times. For sure. And I think everything in life is like that, but we get so self-conscious, it's very difficult to move forward. Yep. Oh, Danielle, thank you so much. Now, new book, 
just came out, The Ancestor, and the new podcast, which is a companion piece, right? Really? Right. It's, exactly. It's a companion. It's of the same universe. It's called Crypto Z. Awesome. And you've also got several under your belt under com. Yeah, you can find everything out about me there. And also you can, if, you know, if you're interested in talking more about writing or, um, you know, joining, I have a newsletter that I send out every week that has tons of book recommendations and writing tips and just thoughts about the universe. So, you know, feel free to sign up for that on my website or send me a note at danielle at com, And I always write back. Awesome. And they can find you writing for uh, New York Times. Yeah, they can. (laughs) Wow. Amazing. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com, and there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Brett Allen, and I am the host of the Open Mic Podcast, where no topic is off limits. Here at the Open Mic, we talk to many different people. We talk to celebrities, entrepreneurs, psychics, celebrities, and everything in between. I would like to encourage you to listen and subscribe. You can learn more about the show at theopenmicpodcast.net. Again, thank you so much. Until next time, cheers and be well. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in LA and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I gotta talk to somebody. It's really famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session.